everyone, and welcome to the Notre Grow podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ivan Khan, and I'll be breaking down topics around education, growth, and culture with the intention to help your own growth journeys. For those not familiar with our hosting organization, Constitutorial, I serve as a CEO, and we serve kids K through 12 in supplemental education centers throughout New York City. One of the unique privileges of my work is the opportunity to really know the various communities that our team serves and discover the various challenges that students face within themselves, their families, and overall community systems. Today, I'm joined by my brother, my guest, Dr. Raihan Faruqi, who is a healthcare technology consultant by day, community organizer by night, and an overall woke Muslim male all day, every day, till this day. Raihan, my brother, welcome, welcome to the Notre Girl podcast. How are you feeling? Thank you for having me, man. This is really awesome, and I am so blessed to know you, my man. Uh, the feeling's mutual. We've, we've had a chance for all the listeners who are like, hey, how long do these guys know each other for? It's like forever. We've actually just met maybe like three to six months ago in person, and you and I uh, seem to have found each other in like long lost souls, cut from similar fabric. So tell me about tell me about what's been going on. I've been seeing you at organizing, you know, across many, many, many fronts recently. Just take us through your next week. You know, we're taping on a Wednesday. You got one week. Take us through your next week and tell us all the things you got on your plate. Yeah, I'm really excited to be working on a new political organizing group called BAPP or BOP. And it stands for Bangladeshi Americans for Political Progress. And as people say, it's Bapre Bap. <laughs> For, uh, for the non-Bengalis out there, um, it's uh, it's a saying about something lit, about something cool, about something coming up. Or just and, something crazy. It's like, oh, snap. Oh, exactly. Crap. It's like, oh, oh it's snap. Like, Bob means like, oh, my dad's like my dad. Oh, dad. It's like, what the heck? Yeah. It's like a what the heck kind of thing. Right. You know, what's so funny. Oh, snap is one of my favorite catchphrases. My friends who know me for a long time will say that. So it's yeah. actually so ironic. <laughs> that's what bop rip up. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the halal way of saying oh shit. But, you exactly. know, that's, that's how absolutely. we had to be like, we can't say oh fuck or oh, oh shit. So you're like, oh snap, oh shoot, oh F, oh freak. So go ahead, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so it's cool. So basically next Wednesday night in Jackson Heights is our launch event. Ooh. And we are a collective of Bangladeshi organizers, activists, candidates, political staffers, campaign strategists, allies and supporters who are coming together to help build a Bangladeshi American voting bloc in New York City, but to also center the political lived realities of those who are working class, who are grassroots, who are not spoken to by candidates that be. And the reason why we're doing this is we noticed that, look, we as Bangladeshi Americans have lots of electoral potential, but we are not organized. And one of my favorite quotes is, blessed are those that are organized. And we've decided, many of us, people like Momita Ahmed, Shahana Hanif, Tahitun Mariam, Noreen Akhtar, just to name a few, we have all been really active in the last few years in various capacities, and we have our own networks. But 
we realized that, listen, we have to come together. And, you know, we actually together are a lot more powerful than we are individually. You know, uh, I think for folks in various industries or in various movements, you're always trying to build your own. You're always trying to work that hustle. But coming together and collectivizing is not easy. And one of my one of my other favorite quotes uh, from Uncle Bernie or Bernie Chacha is, "It's not about me, it's about we." And it that's an ethic I've always had growing up ever since I was young. And you know, being someone who's always been a unifier, building bridges, networking folks, bringing people together, um, I was really excited that we could build something like this. A lot of us, we were part of a group called Bangladeshis for Kaban. So during the district attorney race earlier this year in Queens, uh, a lot of us uh, were attracted to Tiffany's progressive people-powered movement, and we had formed this group. And after her loss, we decided, hey, look, we got to keep this going. And mm. uh, so th- that's what I've been up to. We, you know, we had a great call last night. We have some awesome graphics that we're pushing out on social media in the next few days. We already have 50 people RSVP'd. Uh, I will be giving uh, a TED Talk style presentation during the launch event with maps and numbers and uh, analysis that isn't typically the norm for Bangladeshi political events. You know, it's usually just a bunch of uncles who get up and talk about yeah, but y'all are stuff. doing this whole different. You're, you're you're putting it on, you know, you're putting it upside down, which you should, because the old school way of everyone getting a chance to speak at the microphone is wildly boring and and ineffective. I think one of the main things, you know, I'm like 10 years older than you. And I think one of the main things I'm loving to hear is that we have community clusters in Jackson Heights, Kensington, Parkchester. Even Forest Hills, Queens, Queens Boulevard to Jamaica. So all four of those organizers that you've mentioned are from unique distant places with unique stories and unique experiences. However, there's so much overlap in everyone's shared experiences and you can go so much further when you're traveling alone, like the old proverbs say. So let's take it back to you for a little bit. I'm really excited about Bob, Bangladeshi Americans for Political Progress, Wednesday, November 13th. It's an important, important evening. You got to show up like you got to RZP ahead of time and make sure to be there at Kebab King and show up and show out all your support. We'll come back to a little bit about Bob, but let's hear about you, Raihan. Dr. Faruqi, you grew up in an upper upper middle income environment right around Westchester, I think, in Rye, Rye, New York. Please tell us your uh, please tell our listeners what that experience was like growing up, you know, in the suburbs and what elements of the suburbs do you hope to bring back? to the blue collar communities of New York's outer boroughs. So often it's like Fox News tells you one thing and like the super, super opposite of that will tell you another thing. But you had a chance to really live, you know, really in the middle of it. So what what are the best and, you know, the best elements that you hope to bring to to our Queens, Bronx and Brooklyn outer boroughs? Yeah, you know, uh, my nickname is Rye, uh, but I'm from Rockland, <laughs> not oh, Westchester. Oh, <laughs> okay. But uh but yes, yeah, so I think, you know, being born and raised in Rockland upstate, um, it, it's a, it was a great experience. You know, we, you know, my dad pumped gas uh, at night. He went 
uh, to school. And my mom started a childcare business the year after I was born. Uh, she was always really entrepreneurial. You know, both my parents uh, were educated at Dhaka University, and uh, they bro- both brought that education here, but it went different ways. And you know, my uncle uh, is the one who brought uh, my parents here to Rockland. And the issue, the reason was because there was a, a small. Sufi mosque community that he really was attracted to and mm. you know he told both my parents like this would be a great place you know to raise your family and you could have a nice backyard and you can have the white picket fence if you fa- if you save up and all that um you know but we lived in a very small apartment building um for most of my childhood and you know my parents saved up um and uh when I was in middle middle school they bought this really nice house and uh, yeah, I, I really had a fantastic uh, childhood because of that. But I was also always very connected to the city. Mm-hmm. We would take trips to Jackson Heights uh, all the time. I have many cousins, you know, who live in Queens, in Long Island. And uh, I always had a very strong connection to Bangladeshi American culture and history. So even though I didn't live in the city, I was definitely connected. If exactly. That makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. I, I hear that a lot from like our Indian allies right before us, because a lot of Indian folks came into Queens like ten years before us Bangladeshis did in the early '80s. Right. And even like well-known folks, like they grew up in working-class parts of Queens in the '80s. It was like a lot of violence and, and you know safety issues. So. You know, a lot of families that I knew, I never moved out to Long Island as a kid. I was always staying back in Queens, same with my wife. But when we, we saw families that are Indian that are moving out to Long Island, but we're spending every single weekend coming out to, you know, the stores for the culture, for the food, for the groceries. What aspects of growing up in the suburbs from middle school do you see that you liked and, and you see there's like a, there's like a proper fit that you can bring to your community? What do you consider yeah. yourself, what do you consider your community now? I mean, is it a is it a Bangladeshi thing? Is it a Muslim thing? Is it a progressive thing? I'm sure it's a little bit of everything. So, what what elements do you want to bring from your upbringing? Yeah, I think what I was exposed to from especially from middle school was what wealth looked like. You know, we were middle class, but had a trajectory of upward mobility, but because of the neighborhoods that I was exposed to, you know, I saw the big bougie houses, you know, my friends would go on these expensive trips with their families. I would go to their house and I would feel very foreign. I even remember, you know, when I was young, growing up in a household, eating with your hands, I would sometimes be afraid to eat dinner with these wealthy white people because I didn't even really know how to properly use a fork and a knife. Yeah, so I, I know was, that feeling. Yeah. Like, so not with like, white people, but you know what? You know where I had that shit go down, right, huh? Where? I lived in Bangladesh for a year and a half. Like, I grew up here in Elmhurst in the South Ocean Park, and I went to, like, live in my grandfather's house in Tanwindi. We always ate with our hands, you know? Yeah, yeah. But in Bangladesh, there are these, like, classist systems, you know? And you go to school and... And right. it's the colonization. So I went to a friend's house for like dawa, like for like a like a lunch hangout, and they were like they had like forks and knives. Yeah. And they were like, you have to have the dal before this and that. Yeah. I was like, right. 
I'd say like, why is there like forks and knives here? This is Bangali. So even in in a place in Dhaka, when there's classism, yeah. where it's rampant, I felt like the out of like the fish out of water. That's so weird that you you face it with white people. I face it in Dhaka with like the the, the Dhaka you know echelon or whatever the heck they consider themselves. So. Go yes, on. But I think it's a class. You know, it's not necessarily location or geography. I no, think class no. is important. And yeah, I for a while I lived, I lived in a town called Pearl River, which has the second biggest Irish St. Patrick's Day parade outside of New York City. It's a very Irish town. Ooh. I was one of the only minorities in my class. That must have sucked. And you know, it didn't suck. I didn't face that much hate or discrimination um i was relatively well embraced i think for me that also started this exploration of you know discovery of cultural dis- discovery i've always been someone who has sought to understand the other uh, i speak a lot about radical empathy and i think that's where it started where very different from lots of kids who grew up in the city i did not have any brown friends growing up i did not have any bangladeshi friends growing up my first bangladeshi yeah, friend was that when, when, was, when, like, outside of yeah. your cousins when was like the first like actual friend that you yeah. had that's like bangladeshi yeah my first real friend separate of cousins was yeah. freshman year of college damn so yeah, you, you like missed out and you yeah. were like probably like catching up on all that culture as an 18 year old like what there's yeah. restaurants in in the bronx too, like or in brooklyn too like what's going on down there yeah. you know like stuff like that well, I mean, I always knew about them, but I never had I never had that camaraderie. I never had that friendship, which I really sought. And I think now I am definitely plugging into that uh, a lot more than I was able to. Uh, but in terms of what I enjoyed, um, I had like phenomenal education. You know, I had a really great public high school yeah. and I was super involved. You know, I was president of our National Honor Society. I played basketball on the team. Um, I was in the school play. Uh, I pretty much did everything, uh, but it's also because I had these opportunities that were available and I took full advantage of them. You know, we had really small classes and phenomenal teachers. And for lots of kids growing up in not such great public school systems, that was not the case. So I was always very blessed, you know, to have that growing up. But also I think for my parents, you know, they're really well assimilated. You know, they are super American. And we always remark, I mean, not only did my dad work, my mother also worked. And which is very different from lots of Bangladeshi moms who are stay-at-home moms, and God bless them. You know, I didn't realize that. I'm 10 years older, and my mom always worked. So I thought I was like, doesn't everyone's mom work? Yeah. And like, right. I, th- I, th- I mean, I'm and then like right. this auntie worked, that auntie worked, and yeah. you could be working in different places, white collar, blue collar, whatever. Absolutely. And then it wasn't until later, I was like, oh, snap, I didn't realize that a, a lot of homemaker moms and... Because like growing up, I was in Elmhurst and in the South Hills Park, so both my parents needed to work to like pay rent, yeah. or or to make ends meet, you know. And and my dad wasn't getting paid as much as a teacher, you know, like not much as a teacher. So that's it, so crazy. Like one thing I want to finish the section on, Raihan, is that you know you ended up doing you know going to medical school similar to me, and towards the end of it, after completing medical school, you did the extra year after medical school to to complete complete the one year of uh, training to for the final portion. I finished medical school and we both left clinical medicine. 
Tell me about your decision there before we head out to the growth section and we can land the plane for the education section. Sure. Yeah, so I went to undergrad at Cornell and I double majored in both biology and political science in my freshman year. Those were really two of my things growing up was always medicine and was always politics. And I've been blessed having lots of passions and I had to make a choice. Um, I told myself I was both pre-med and pre-law <laughs> my freshman year, uh, which was ridiculous looking back. And I made the choice to you know, do biology, do medicine, put politics and organizing in the background and pursue that. And I loved it. I loved clinical medicine. You know, I worked for a few years at a multiple sclerosis research center um, after I graduated before medical school. I was involved on a phase one clinical trial with the FDA, uh, got my hands dirty uh, with some stem cell therapy. It was really cool. And it got me really into what did you enjoy more, though? Because you're, you're listing off stuff that you got to do that was really cool, similar to the way I felt. Hey, I got to learn about this. I got to be on the yeah. force. I got to do this. This was cool. I got to deliver babies. Yo, exactly. you know I delivered a baby that ended up becoming a con student and he got into Stuyvesant later? You're kidding me. I swear to God. I, he, <laughs> That's he, amazing. Like, he's like, his dad comes up to me. He's like, I'm like a chinta marcin. I was like, uh... <laughs> I was like, Jodh Bhacharage Memonitis Hospital. I was like, oh, I was like, of course I remember you. Like, why the hell did she ever get, reach out to me afterwards? Yeah. And, and why don't you name your child after me? You know, like, it was <laughs> like my raging ego. And, you know, I was just in tears. I, I gave the phone the camera to like my team. I was like, yo, we're having a little reunion here oh, from birth amazing. till, you know, till adulthood. We got yeah. you. But so, you know, we. What did you really enjoy? Because you're you're talking about your experiences, but it sounds like what what do you what were you most passionate about? Yeah, I love neurology, and I still do. Um, I loved mm. I just love the brain. I've always been someone um, okay. who's really been into things like music therapy and memory, and so on the clinical level, uh, I loved that. And because of my work in MS, I saw myself becoming a neurologist and. You know, I did one year of internal medicine residency, and a lot of this past year was, you know, discovering my truth and also not running away from my truth. And ever since I was young, I always had this struggle of what do I do first, then what do I do, then what comes afterwards, and kind of figuring out my life. You know, not many people know, but I never really intended on practicing clinical medicine for a long time, which is shocking for some people to hear. It's like, oh, why would you go to med school and do all that? that, You're dropping that on the podcast. I feel so honored that you're you're, It's like, by the way, I never wanted to practice from the get go. So jokes on you. I meant it the whole time. This is awesome. Go, go, go. Yeah, no, seriously. And, you know, it's a lot of people don't know that. And the feedback that I often get is, well, you know, then why did you do all of it? Uh, Well, it's because I wanted to. You know, that was for me, that was part of the plan that the plan was to be a physician, um, but also to de- redefine what being a physician means, because what we now have is a a changing healthcare system where right. you can be a physician and not be a clinician. That's right. And, you know, I have lots of friends um, in medical school. Uh, We're asking you, Ryan, how do I get out? So, yeah, so, yeah um, are, but buddy. we're also now working at healthcare startups who are working for hedge funds, they're working for government. And this is happening more and more as time goes on. 
And don't get me wrong, I loved clinical medicine uh, and I might go back, but for the time being, I thought to myself, you know, there's an opportunity that I want to take where I can take my medical career into a different direction, which I've always wanted to. So that that was something business related or consulting related or something tech related. And that's what ended up happening to me. And uh, I took that opportunity and made that jump. But it, it has not been an easy journey by I'm any gonna, So I'm going to stop you right there. And then we're going to go to our first break because I want to hear about the growth that you enjoyed since then. So to all of our listeners, you are listening to Bap Re Bap with Dr. Ryan Faruqi on the Notagro podcast. We'll be right back. the Notagro podcast. I'm your host at Dr. Ivan Khan. We are joined by my little bro, Dr. Raihan Faruqi for the episode in Bap Re Bap. Before we left, Raihan, we were talking about your transition from medical school to the arrest of the non-medical clinical arena. And, you know, a lot of that goes into finding, uh, you know, more about your true passions and listening to that other voice of ours. It's oftentimes suppressed due to cultural, you know, immigrant pressures. So right now, the Bangladeshi and Muslim community, the South Asian community has had more candidates running for public office than ever before. Plenty. So I want to also credit the South Asian organizers and Muslim organizers and other communities of color who built the foundation, starting with our sisters, Linda Sarsar, Ali Latif, Faiza Ali, Murad Awade, Noreen Akhtar, Ali Najmi, Rashma Sajani, Suraj Patel. The list goes on. But more recently, we've had... Shahana Hanif, Mary Jabida, we've had Joy Chaudhary, and we have uh, Momita Ahmed, and we have a few more that are coming up. So take us through that evolution, and please take us through, you know, what your thoughts are on these candidates. How did you get yourself involved in so many candidates, uh, campaigns? And congratulations to all the, my brothers and sisters before us and now who have paved the way for the community. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, I would start post 9-11. Lots of Muslim organizing in the city started. The collective of Muslim Democratic Club of New York or MDCNY uh, was how I got exposed post-Trump. Um, so meeting people like Linda Sarsour, Ali Latif, Ali Najmi, Murad, uh, you know, there were a bunch of folks who worked either in city government for the comptroller or for the city council speaker or for various uh, borough presidents. And it was a collective that just came together of folks that were really involved um, from the Muslim scene. And it was the first group that had the power to endorse candidates. Endorsing candidates gives you power. So candidates would start showing up to their events. They would canvas on their campaigns. They would knock on doors. They would sign petitions. And then Post-Trump, also another group formed called Muslims for Progress, or MFP, and this mm-hmm. was co-founded by Noreen Akhtar, uh, who's from Queens. Shout to our sister Noreen. Yeah, and uh, MFP's board is mostly Bangladeshi Americans, so people like Tofi Karun and Saima Khandekar, 
Sadia Choudhury, Mehreen Choudhury, Farhana Huda Islam. And I grew Shout up with some of these a bunch people. of my childhood sisters. I, yeah, I, 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 grew, yeah. I grew up with a bunch of them as, as kids. Yeah. So uh, shout yeah. out to all them and their colleagues. Go on. They're awesome. And, and a lot of them live now in Long Island. And, you know, the idea was, look, we're not organizers and activists by trade. Um, we're various professionals. You know, we now have this, you know, platform. We now want to do something. Um, so let's get activated. You know, so MFP very early on. Um, got involved onto AOC's campaign. MFP was the first group to endorse AOC. Before anybody knew who she was, AOC spoke at MFP's iftar. Noreen ended up becoming hired as AOC's organizing director. And uh, the list goes on. So that's how MFP really got plugged in. But MFP was super hyper-local, especially in Long Island, focusing on state Senate races, assembly races. So like Albany-related stuff for all the non-political yeah. listeners. So there's city government, New York City, five boroughs, municipalities, and then there's state government, you know, really based out of the Capitol with the lower house and the, you know, the legislators or assembly folks. State senators, and then you got the executive branch with the governor before we hit up Washington. Just just laying the framework in case people need to keep up. Go ahead. Yeah, and the the biggest realization was we have the most power locally. And I'll say that again. We have the most power locally. So MFP realized that this hyper-local strategic approach in mobilizing Muslim voters in very small districts in Long Island was a way to build political power. And, you know, once they took that knowledge and information to electeds and to candidates saying, for example, like, hey, look, man, you lost your last election by a thousand votes. We have access to 700 Muslims who might want to vote for you. Candidates were like, hey, come on in. <laughs> you get a seat at the table. Right? What? Please. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, do you want coffee, tea, or uh, exactly. biryani? I got you. So understanding that micro-targeting and understanding that campaigns are about money and votes. So that's really what MFP understood from the beginning, but also this idea of progress, that we're not just going to be a centrist, democratic club like this is going to be a progressive group like we are going to stand for things like medicare for all environmental justice um uh, immigration justice and the list goes on and on of issues on progressive yeah don't centrist democrats support those things too like i I don't understand where the line is drawn between the centrist because i thought I thought I was always down with everything that you just mentioned, but I never like labeled myself a progressive. So can you help me figure out what I am? Yeah, I think that's a really great discussion, especially in these political circles where Bernie's campaign as a democratic socialist running against Hillary Clinton nationally was a a unifier for a progressive movement that was very fractured in various parts of the country where lots of folks identified as Democrats or even as liberals. Yeah, right? yeah, I consider myself liberal a lot, but I'm not like right. politically so inclined to understand anything beyond, I'm a liberal person, I'm not, I'm not conservative, I'm liberal, so go ahead. But I think the word progressive is a lot newer in political circles in the last five years, and that has come to mean someone who is intersectional in mm. their, outlook of understanding that, look, things like 
white supremacy oppress everyone, right? So whether you're black or brown or Asian, whether you're fighting for the environment or you're fighting against no new jails, like there's a there's an infrastructure, there's a structure Mm. that's out there, right? So if you're a progressive, I think you understand that versus with where if you're a liberal, like you stand for certain things, but there is not a, this overarching structure that you have identified that you're fighting against. So that's one fault line that I can help divide. Now, why that's important is because that's really allowed lots of Muslims and especially lots of Bangladeshi Americans to end up becoming leaders on the progressive left. You know, my brother Murad Awode. Uh, at the New York Immigration Coalition was behind the JFK protests. Oh, yeah. Murad helped me out personally. I'll just leave it at that. I went to the airport. I was there to pick up a friend. I wasn't sure how it was going to go down. It just passed. And of course, it passed while they were away. And I saw Murad. I saw Faiza. I was like, he's like, Ivan, what are you doing here? I was like, hey, man, I'm here for a friend. I just want to be here just in case they get caught up. Yeah. And then he's like, what are their names? This is how it's going to work, and I'm just going to be with you and let me know if they're coming out. And they had a bunch of like attorneys just, just ready. And I was like, I waited, and thank God my friend and, and their family came out. And I was like, Murad, be good. And I was like, but, but keep up the fight. So I see yeah. Murad, and um, that that's incredible. And so, so clearly we are progressing through values that we want to make sure, you know, there, so, so many things are you know, like a basic human right, and you shouldn't have to go to war for that or or, or fight so badly for that. Right. Tell me a little bit about how the start of Muslims... Can I ask you a question as a Muslim sure. person? Like, yeah. I, I grew up in a non... Uh, like, in a non-observant, observant house. I didn't have parents that were doing namaj five times a day. Right. So we really just created our values based off of what felt right. So LGBTQ rights, normal, like, it's totally fine. Right. How how does MFP and please pardon my ignorance like approach a topic like LGBTQ rights where a lot of uncles and aunties who who, who completed the book would maybe object and saying hey like, so can you can you break that down because a lot of media will tell you Muslims hate this Muslims hate that so can you just get to a one minute clarification and correct the narrative so you can tell the story for MFP and not let others tell it. Yeah, I mean, I can do even less. I think someone like Linda Sarsour is the perfect example where she's a hijabi, she's an observant Muslim woman, you know, but she stands arm in arm with LGBTQ folks. And the idea is, look, we live in America, there's a separation between church and state, where I can, I can fight for you doesn't mean I necessarily endorse your lifestyle, right? And you can fight for me doesn't mean you endorse my lifestyle, right? So we're talking about civil rights. And I think the civic understanding of what is a right, right? So if I have the freedom of religion or if I have the freedom to practice my sexuality, whatever. Exactly. It's an identity. Like I, yeah. I like I, I never use the word lifestyle because, you know, I have members of my family who have it. So I'm like, oh, that's just the way, you know, yeah. my sister-in-law's born, you know? So it's like, right. hey, who am I to judge? Right. Who the heck? And, and like, who, who the heck they should love? Or, you know, like yeah. everyone should have these rights. So, yeah, and I think, and mm-hmm. I think being someone who is a faithful Muslim, understanding that, like, it is a tenet of our faith of understanding if you are mm-hmm. living 
in a country, you have to abide by the laws of that country. Like that's a like that's an Islamic tenet, right? So oh. if we live in a country like the U.S., if we live in a state like New York, if we're living in a city like New York City, like we have to abide by the laws and the rules there, right? And if there are rights that are afforded to those folks, like we have to not only protect those rights, we have to also affirm those rights. So I, I don't that. I don't personally see any religious issue of 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 uh, you know supporting you know those folks, uh, but again, you, know, you know you don't hear that enough as a kid. Yeah, like, I know. Like as a, as a kid, as a, yeah. as a person who's grown up not around, you know, like like you don't hear that enough. Where like Mulbis and at the Masjid before Jummah, they're saying, by the way, we have to follow the laws of this country. Also, like if yeah. that's kind of like just ignored, and 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 kids are like children and youth are. I, I feel like we're isolated to to make a choice. It's yeah. one or the other, but there, there's so much more that you're opening up, you know, in the space to Absolutely. allow ourselves that identity of being, you know, a, a happy gay Muslim with myself or, yeah. you know, whatever you're going through, you know, that may yeah. not that come into conflict with 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 teachings in, in, in the books. So, you know, I also wanted to talk about um, AOC's campaign really quickly, okay. uh, because after Bernie, I think AOC's campaign was really helpful in you know, starting this potential of, wow, a progressive can really win, right? Because lots of progressives were organizing, they were activating, but it was difficult to elect one. So once she was in office, then the floodgates just opened and the, mm. the gates are wide open right now. Representation, man, it matters. I mean, if you see at least one person standing up for this for 50, like 40, 50 years like Bernie has, Absolutely. and finally it takes just... A, a little bit of fresh air at a time where we could really use it and then it yeah. just spread to you know all it, to the squad so exactly speaking about squads tell me about the squad quickly we got i'll give you yeah. 30 seconds I'll, I'll, sure. I'll let you do a 30 second promo for each candidate absolutely that you are absolutely pushing think about wrestling macho man hulk hogan yeah. a different era john cena it up sure uh did for you sure. watch wrestling growing up by the way before you go to college did I'm you sorry? watch wrestling growing up? Wrestling? Oh, dude, are you kidding me? I was Undertaker all day, every day. Okay, okay. So you and you and I have cut promos and uh, across multiple forums before. Absolutely. So go ahead, thirty yeah. seconds per candidate. You pick the first one, and we'll time it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so cool because you know post AOC, so many of these folks who are now running worked on AOC's campaign, Catalina Cruz's campaign, who was a guest before, Jessica Ramos's campaign, and they realized, you know what? F it. I'm going to run myself and we're going to break the glass ceiling. We have six Bangladeshi candidates who are running citywide. Six, wow. Yeah. Yes, we have six. I'm most excited by the two candidates running for our, assembly. All right, the timing is starting now. Go for it. Go, go for your first person. In no particular so, order to the candidates. I am sure. forcing him to do alphabetically randomized. <laughs> the order's in preset. He's not picking favorites. 30 yeah. seconds per candidate. Cut the promo, Undertaker. You got it. Let's go. So number one, we've got my homeboy, Joy Choudhury. He's running for assembly in Assembly District 34. So this is Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, Corona, Woodside. And Joy is dope. You know, he's a young 30-something-year-old. He's a member of the U.S. Army. His wife and kid are in Bangladesh. He's the president of South Asian American Voters Association. He's an organizer. He's a taxi driver. OK, he mm -hmm. is a taxi driver who is running for office. And that is such a powerful 
narrative. I was with Joy last week, and we filmed like you a got ten seconds, you got ten twenty seconds minute cut. And he's running on, he's running for working class immigrant values, which is needed in the assembly. Second, I've got my homegirl, Mary Jobaida. Shout out to Joy. Shout out to Joy. My dad knew Joy personally, so shout out to Joy. Yeah. Fuck is on for Mary Bobby. Go for it. Mary Bobby. She's in Assembly District 37. That's Western Queens, LIC, Astoria, Woodside, Sunnyside, Masspath. She is Mary the Movement Mom. Okay, she's an activist. She was helpful in kicking out uh, Amazon's HQ2 in Western Queens. She's about uh, voter reforms. You know, she wants to put term limits. Her her opponent, Kathy Nolan, has been in office for 36 years, older than me. Right. Oh, sorry, the studio owners is going in the back. Sorry, I got about that for, yeah. for, for Kathy. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, and you know, Mary is super progressive. She canvassed on Caban's campaign. You know, she went to NYU. She's got a bachelor's in media. She's super savvy on Facebook. She's got a huge following. I, and- I'm going to take over here because you are at 40 seconds. I'll take the last 20 seconds. I've had a chance to work with Mary Jabai, the Mary Poppy, uh, for a previous talk show that I that she was an incredible executive producer on. She was a fantastic teammate, fantastic yes. uh, mom, fantastic poppy, fantastic sister. Every time she sees my mom, the hugs are there. The love is there. Uh, I wish Mary Poppy so much. And of course, um, you know, her, her, her three kids and Baya. So next up, you got it. Next, next up, we've got city council. We have homegirl Shahana Hanif. She is running in District 37 out in Brooklyn. A lot of that is Western Brooklyn. So Park Slope, Gowanus, Kensington, uh, Little Bangladesh in Brooklyn. Uh, Shahana uh, co-founded the Bangladeshi Feminist Collective. She organized with CAV. She has lupus. She's a disability justice organizer. She works for her own councilman, Brad Lander, right now. Um, what more can I say about her? She's incredibly eloquent. Uh, she's fundraising up a storm. Uh, I threw a fundraiser for her a couple of weeks ago. We raised about $2,000. Uh, we're super excited. She's also one of the founding members of BOP. Um, like me, she was born here. She's progressive. She's- 40 seconds, Rahan. I got the last 20. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Shahana Hanif, our sister from Kensington, Brooklyn. Uh, uh, my wife, myself, and the entire community couldn't be more proud of her. She's actually the one of the few people whose who's soul just reminds me of my dad's. So no matter what the policies are, um, I got love for Shahana, and hopefully everyone can come out to the Shahana fundraiser that I'll be supporting as well. Thank you to all the supporters for Shahana. You got the next candidate back to you, Ryan. All right. We got in Congress, we have homeboy Shaniyat Choudhury. So Sean is running in the 5th Congressional District, which is Southeast Queens and Western Long Island. Sean worked on AOC's campaign. He's in the Netflix documentary with AOC, Knock Down Her House. Um, He has worked in the Assembly as a legislative aide. Uh, He's a dope organizer. He's volunteered for MFP. He's super active on the progressive left. He's running for Medicare for All, No Ice, No New Jails. Very activist, very progressive. He's 28. He's a Marine, which is incredible. Ooh. Grew up working class and uh, very happy to support him. And uh, hopefully, and he's running against Greg Meeks, who is the boss of the Queen's Democratic Party. So he's coming at the man. Are at 45 seconds uh, to about Shanayat's uh, uh whole story. I think it's always incredible whenever we have folks in the military Whenever you think about the military, you don't think about brown people enough and how brown people and minorities oftentimes consist of the military uh, in a, you know, in a, in a hype, in, in an overproportionate way for many reasons. So uh, shout outs to Shanahid Chaudhary and his campaign coming up. You got the next one. 
And I'm going to shout out two other candidates who I'm not personally supporting, but are running as Bangladeshi Americans. So we have Badrun Khan, who's actually primarying AOC. And then there's also Misbah Uddin, who's running for city council. And, you know, it's just great that we have six candidates across the city who are running. And it shows us that, look, Bangladeshi Americans, we've been politically active, we've worked on campaigns. Um, and now it's time for us to run and time for us to win because we've got demographic power. We have the electoral potential. And the work that we're trying to do at BOP is trying to solidify these voting blocks, Ivan, that you've mentioned before. We have yeah. Jamaica. We've got Woodside, Jackson yeah. Heights, yeah. Kensington, Castle yeah. Hill, Park Crown Ozone Heights. Park. Yeah, don't forget Ozone, Ozone Park, Park. Or Hill. We got Ozone Queens. Park. Southeast Queens is the next battleground. You have Ozone Park, Woodhaven. You've got, you know, all those areas. You know, Richmond Hill. I mean, there's so many Bangladeshis there, but they're not registered to vote and they're not organized. And, you know, we love ourselves the politics. A lot of this stuff is reminding me of 1970, my man. We had the bad flood. We had the we had the language movement part of that in 1952. We had the underrepresentation of resources. We had the high. We had the greater population. Fastest yeah. growing population in the top schools of uh, of New York City. Fastest growing population in so many colleges. Fastest growing population in so many communities. Yet, despite our love for politics, we haven't engaged the Western politics because we're still stuck on Bangladeshi politics. Uh, shout outs to uh, Badrun Khan and Ms. Uddin in their respective races. You are here listening to the Notigro podcast for our final break where we'll tackle some culture before letting Raihan Faruqi back to his day job. Thank you. Welcome back to the Notre podcast, Bap Rebap, with Dr. Raihan Faruqi. We are approaching the culture segment. Dr. Faruqi, my little bro, Raihan, you also host a podcast called Katanafe. And I recognize that you and your co-hosts are approaching topics that are, can often be taboo in Muslim culture, South Asian culture. So take us a little bit about the premise of this and what you hope to achieve. And we'll, we'll ask you, we'll get into that a little bit. Yeah. So first of all, hosting a podcast is dope, as I'm sure you know pretty well. And I am an avid listener of podcasts. Um, what are your uh, favorite podcasts, Ivan? I started with, I got to like, obviously, I, now that I have Nota Girl, I have to listen to my own content, like to make sure the, the tapings went well and learn yeah. from it. Prior to that, I was really inspired by Tim Ferriss, uh, Bill Simmons, because I'm, I'm really into sports and pop yes. culture. Yes. Uh, so Bill Simmons, but I was like, yo, he's getting so old and so white. And like yeah. his his takes were like so fucking Boston. I was like, and he yeah. and he went out of his way to fuck on the Knicks. Like, well, like, yo, come on, man. I mean, like, so I was like, yo, like I, I needed to make sure we had our own voice in culture and education, which is clearly my space and growth, which is something that I love. So, uh, Listen, Tim Ferriss. If you ever have, if you ever have a like, I am a diehard basketball fan. I am yeah. similar to you. I love the Knicks. I love the Ringer podcasts. If you've heard you any. I'll I give am you better upset. ones. I'll give you better ones, bro. There's yeah. a whole Knicks Twitter community. Tell like, me. Uh, Locked on Knicks, Knicks okay. Film School, 
Um, New York Terry and Terry, Ter- Trey and Terry, uh, our homeboy uh, Mo, a Bangladeshi guy is doing Nickish. Oh no way! Nick- yeah, yeah, we got Bangladeshi Nick podcast, dude. Um, we're gonna yeah. go to Nick game soon. We're gonna have some fun, but you yeah. know, like this is. How about you? What are you listening to besides, um, you know, your own Katanafe? You know, I love The Moth. I don't know if you've heard of that podcast. So they do these just deep dives into personal storytelling. Um, I love 538 Politics. Uh, I am a politico. Um, There's an awesome podcast called Man Up Masculinity, uh, Mm -hmm. which is um, produced by my friend uh, Ayman, um, which is really cool. I do a lot of um, Muslim masculinity work. uh, So it's really cool to see like an Arab Muslim guy you know, representing for positive manhood uh, in the podcast world. Um, and I'm actually going to be at a live taping of his podcast next week, which I will throw you an invite to. I'd love to. Uh, and, and I always appreciate the invites, my man. I mean, like, we are six years apart. And like, I feel like so much of our like uh, fabric overlaps. But, you know, when, when I have a seven year old daughter and a four and a half year old boy, it's really tough to make a lot of the events, especially with a person with your uh, <laughs> revolving door of events. So shout outs, shout outs to these podcasts you're listening to. I want to talk yeah. a little about Muslim masculinity in the culture. Yeah, I, I, I'm in a very interesting space. Yeah, yeah. I'm older. And I, I've gone through so many things in life and my own experiences, but I, you know, I get to lead a, a team and, and I often I'm exploring ways to teach our men how to be truer, you know, better masculinity images. Through your invitations, I attended one of your workshops for the Malika Projects, Muslim Male Masculinity Project. So I'd love for you nurturing masculinity conference. So I'd love to really just get your, uh, you know, a, a minute or two summary on that, and then maybe I can ask you a few questions on it. So why don't you give us yeah. a summary on it and I'll ask you some questions. Absolutely. Um, you know, basically, you know, Muslim men, you know, we're out here, we're struggling, we have our own issues and shit that we're dealing with, um, you know, but we're trying to be good people too. Um, and our the purpose of our project um, is to build you know, a healthier, more positive, nourishing Muslim masculinity. Um, we have um, intimate group sessions um, every couple of months. We gather anywhere from six to eight men. Uh, we have an entire curriculum that we've put together. Uh, we talk about things like body image, self-esteem, you know, how has pop culture and media conditioned us and brainwashed us uh, to talk about women and describe women. Um, you know, we talk about emotional intelligence. We talk about mental health issues. Um, you know, we talk about the male role models in our life, and our, our fathers, our brothers, our cousins, like what we learned from them that was positive and negative. And, and we really break that down. We talk about the man box, you know, and how we're conditioned to be these unemotional, um, just super tough guys, you know, who don't cry, who don't ask for help, who uh, don't show their sensitive sides. Uh, and we talk about how that affects our relationships, our relationships with women, um, uh, our relationships with our with our parents, with our kids, with our friends, um, and how it's also affecting our health. And uh, the oh, work, yeah. health, the health, the health toll is deep. It's like a seven yeah. to eight year life life shortened expectancy. A lot more cardiovascular stress related uh, cortisol level stuff, the relaxation Absolutely. response, and all that stuff. So. Absolutely. How has the impact been? I had a chance to attend at CUNY and we had a chance to do some great uh, work around this breakout session. So 
How has the impact been from some of the members who've attended uh, like me? You know, we are just so humbled to, to do this work because mostly men don't want to leave the space when they come. We have a WhatsApp thread. We have a Facebook group. Um, so we have digital spaces as well as physical spaces. You know, they love it. A lot of men are looking for connection and they're lonely. They're looking for friends. They're looking for an outlet. Um, you know, they're afraid of being called gay for uh, expressing emotions and, and we're helping to deal with some of that. And, and it's 2019. Who the hell's doing that shit? I mean, like, surprised. what the freak? And like, uh, what are we surprised. in middle school in like the 80s and 90s? Like, people people still talk that way? Like, what the hell's wrong sure, with Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think we have heavily, there's just, there's a repressed, um, there's a repressed homophobia. Um, yeah. Exists, and, it, and it's absolutely um, present in, uh, in Muslim circles where, especially from a young age, you know, there's a strict gender divide, but also for yeah. men. You know, there's this emphasis on being the provider and the protector. Um, and, you know, there's the whole uh, taboo around homosexuality and gay marriage, um, which is its own thing. So it, it's it's really wrapped up. And then you bring in the aspects of culture, right? If you're African versus Middle Eastern versus South Asian versus a white convert, um, there are so many issues here that are nuanced together. So, you know, us being able to provide the space and a forum for people to openly talk, but also to activate and the idea is eventually, how can we partner an ally with women to fight gendered violence? Because guess what? Right. Rape, sexual assault, and abuse is a reality. It's a big deal. Right. And uh, I think we as men have to be much more vocal. We have to be much stronger allies. And, and a lot you. of this work is, is wrapped up there. I want to thank you because so much of like, it's like self-defense classes for women. Yeah. Because they like, because you know, my wife and I speak about it, you know, every night, like just experiences that she's going through and how it's different because it's her experience and how it's my experience. And you know, women should be able to be able to feel safe just walking yeah. in the middle of the day from their the subway station to their residence without getting hollered at, getting followed, getting harassed, yeah. all of the above, and then some. So it's just like a constant. It's it, for guys. I once read this thing. It's like. Pretend you have like $15,000 in your pocket and everyone knows that and you're and, and, and it's late. And, and, wow. and that's how you have to because if everyone knows you got $15,000, $20,000 in your pocket, you're a target. And like, right. so it, it was just like a very small little, you know, anecdote to just give guys some understanding of uh, that type of feeling of safety. So I'm really, really grateful that you folks are targeting the, the root of the problem in a lot of the way that men are raised and, and a lot of the ways that we can undo some of that old school ways. And, you know, it's awesome because uh, on the podcast, so we try to focus on Muslim millennial life, especially here in the city. We have two episodes and we call them Spill the Chai on Love. And, you know, my, my co-host, Maria Musri, she talks very openly about how like she's been harassed by men going on dates like she's gotten really creepy dms yeah. people on yeah. facebook and instagram and Ugh. you know so talking very openly about these issues on the podcast and really going through the nuances of relationships in the digital world talking about our faith struggles you know how it ties into um you know what kind of muslim you want to be um, we've had a phenomenal reception um you know with the podcast there are not lots of muslim-centric podcasts out there yeah. i do want to give a shout out to see something say something at buzzfeed um and also um identity politics it's two black muslim women uh, but there there wasn't a big space for us to do this 
And, uh, you know, I used to act in high school. I've always been a performer. And people have been like, hey, you'd be great in radio. Like, think about getting into it. And I'm like, yeah, let's make a podcast. Like, let's just do it. And uh, for me, it was just so cool, like learning how to produce, you know, splicing music and um, and just talking about things. Yeah. Well, I got you on our podcast on the Know to Grow podcast and I got to jump on yours. I got to complete my listens, uh, Cut the Nafe. Yes. Another thing that we share is a little bit about our, uh, you know, to wrap things up before we hit up a little hip hop and basketball is that our, our, our spirituality. I did not grow up in a, a very traditionally, you know, observant Muslim household. Uh, my parents were too busy working to teach me much until I moved to Bangladesh, you know? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your approach to your faith, particularly around the spirituality of it, uh, around the Sufi, you know, community? Uh, if you just want to share a little bit about it for, you know, for a, a minute and then and then maybe we'll move on to a, a few light things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think growing up in America, which is a very secular country, being religious and being observant is not cool. And from a very young age, um, growing up in a really great um, you know household where my parents did practice, but, you know, they made it into a very encouraging manner. Um, and even to this day, uh, I've always like represented being an observant Muslim very publicly. And we were very lucky to grow up in a really um, tight knit, but welcoming and tolerant uh, Sufi community. And for those not aware, uh, the way that I describe Sufism is it's a science of our faith. Um, it's very similar when you're in high school, you can study biology and chemistry and physics. Um, in Islam, it's very similar. You know, we have the sciences of fiqh, which is the law and jurisprudence, but then we have the study of mysticism or spirituality, which is Sufism. Mm. Sadly, lots of people in the U.S. are not exposed to that science, yeah. uh, and it is a science, and it's really it's the understanding of uh, it's the why of our faith. Uh, it's like, well, why do you pray? Like, why do you fast? Like, why do you do what you do? And a lot of it comes down to divine love. It comes down to understanding divine harmony and how we are all connected. And so being in that environment where there were lots of American converts, there were some folks who were previously Catholic and Jewish, um, uh, folks from the Middle East and from Africa, not that many Desi people, um, growing up in that very diverse environment had a real you know imprint on me but also understanding that you know in sufism a lot of the work is about your ego and working on uh on yourself and you know a lot of the times now on instagram or on magazines i see a lot of this self-help self-growth you know positive psychology stuff which is great but i try to you know educate people like hey we have this in our yeah I've, I've had this um, yeah. time story when i was five i yeah. I, I understand the, the importance of growing through yeah. understanding yourself better absolutely this is, this is incredible and i didn't mean to cut you off and i was just thinking about ways that maybe we can uh expand on that conversation later because you know when you're in a different country you're taught your religion mostly through the closest thing that can teach it the yeah. local masjid or mom or dad or they bring in a hujur who falls right. asleep during the lessons, you know, like we've all had that happen. Yeah. So to now that we're older, a lot of folks are older and, and re, rediscovering their their spiritual sides. I, I'd love to have those conversations. However, as before we wrap up, you mentioned you're an actor. We always go through we oftentimes go through hip hop top fives, but I want to change it up a little bit. I want to go through your acting top five. 
Okay. Yeah. Three to five actors and actresses whose acting chops that you're like, that's my mother. You know, like <laughs> that. I love this because acting. Let's go there, and I want to. I want to hear about your favorite um, memory as a basketball fan. Uh, okay. Go ahead. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna switch up your question. I'm gonna give you something really juicy. All right. So in mm. terms of in terms of acting, I'll give you my top two acting experiences. Okay. Okay. My my first one was. You ready for this? Yeah. So. My first kiss was on stage, and my, oh my parents gosh. were sitting in the front row. That's crazy. Did you get to practice before the show, or was it just literally like right there in front of everyone? All I'm going to say is I practiced in my bedroom on a pillow because I had no oh idea. Oh, my gosh. That is what I was incredible, doing. amazing, brave, courageous vulnerability. How did it go and how did you did you do a good acting job first of all the girl was beautiful and i was kind of into her and her boyfriend was also in the play so i was like dude i better be careful um but i think it went great my parents actually said nothing after it happened surprisingly but because they're tiger parents they recorded the whole thing every time my mom would show the video she would always walk out of the room during that scene she wouldn't just edit oh, it out for the friends i thought she just edited it out for the aunties like hey hey you know like some shit like that so what's the, that's awesome what's the what's another acting experience that you want to share about okay the other acting experience yeah so i'd say the second acting experience is um what's really cool is that um working in theater and working in drama it's not just about actors. It's also about what happens behind the stage. So um, I was a part of this production called Guys and Dolls. I was part of the backstage crew. And it was really cool, like building the entire set. And I had this incredible admiration and fascination for people working in audio and in video and helping put together the back the backdrop. And they're really invisible, you know, during the play. Like people don't understand how important the yeah. entire physical set is during that so just being a part of that process like made me understand like hey make the visible invisible sometimes amazing any uh acting influences on the big screen that we all can relate to that you're like yo i love edward norton i love johnny depp like like who did you who did you whose movies were you kind of had like a soft spot for yeah you know that's a really good question um I mean, I love DiCaprio. I know everyone. Yeah. I know that's an easy answer, but I'll tell nah, you. Nah, DiCaprio's incredible. Who else? I'll, I'll tell you the reason fine. why. I'll tell you the reason why. Because he's he's incredible. He's still... Give us give us other give, give us other surprise ones. We all know why DiCaprio's great. I'm sorry. <laughs> give us another one. Oh my God! You know, you're putting me on the spot. I that's can't... the whole point. It's a freaking podcast, bro. You're the act. You're the actor. I can't I can't think of someone who like I like really speaks to me as a man. But I will that's tell you, really... as a woman, who I love. I love Please, Rachel. Yeah. I love Rachel McAdams. Um, the reason why I've always liked her is because, like, she has this, like, sincerity about her. And she has this, like, with other actresses, you can tell that they're trying too hard or that they're faking it a little bit. With Rachel, it's like, wow, this is really. First name basis. First yeah, name oh, basis, in case you're listening, Ms. Bro, McAdams. She got that. She got when, that Canadian sweetness, you know. When I, McAdams loves Gosling for all the lazy Sunday YouTube pop culture references. We both love basketball. Hopefully we'll get a chance to watch a little basketball together yeah. this year. Well, yeah. any favorite basketball teams, players you're looking forward to before we sign off for this episode? 
You know, listen, I was on the Zion Pelicans train this season, but I will tell you, mm-hmm. as a depressed Knicks fan, the fact that we lost our mm-hmm. Latvian son, Kristaps Porzingis, to the Mavericks, I'm like now a Mavericks fan. He's kind of a dick, though, man. I mean, did he's you, a terrible I mean, person. don't you don't yeah, you lead the Muslim masculinity stuff? You're still gonna you got love for KP after all the. Workshops you put on? Come listen, on, man. We ain't nothing like KP no, I can KP no more. The man from the talent. Dog, Him and dog. Luka on the court. I get know, it. I get it. Luca is going to be incredible. Kristaps, uh, you know, it's weird. It, it it worked out well for him. I can't believe I'm I'm ending this such an incredible episode with talking about KP. <laughs> However, you know, enjoy the Mav games. Yeah. Uh, I don't have tickets to the Mav games, and uh, hopefully we can catch a little um, catch, catch a little basketball action this yeah. this upcoming year. Can't wait to love- see what's happening with Bop uh, next Wednesday, November thirteenth. Awesome. Uh, Rye Grams, find uh, Rye Hunt Brewery on Rye Grams uh, at R A I Grams, and from there you can catch up on all of the incredible uh, platforms that he's on. Uh, this has been a an extended uh, episode of the Nota Girl Podcast. I'm so grateful to our Dr. Faruqi for his time today and to our audience members. We hope you learned something, had a good time. Please give us those five-star reviews, share with your friends. And until next time, please remember to pay it forward.